their serving, in the words that they say and speak. God, we desire that this would be a great opportunity for many people in this community to hear about Jesus. God, we are excited to worship on Easter Sunday morning because we are reminded afresh every Easter that Jesus is alive, that he has risen from the grave. And God, that's the reality that we thank you for and worship you for each and every day of our lives. But many people have never heard that, or many people have never thought twice about it. And so God, it's our prayer that as we have this community Easter egg hunt, that that reality the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, he's interceding for us, that that reality would be brought to people who've not considered it before. And God, we pray that you would be at work even now, preparing people's hearts to hear the message. God, we pray that you'd be preparing our hearts right now to give witness to Jesus when given opportunities. God, just as I preached a few weeks ago from the book of Acts, we know that your Holy Spirit is at work in people all over the place, preparing them to hear the word. God, I pray that you would also continue to be preparing us, your followers, to speak the word. Only one person will get on a microphone and share a gospel presentation next Saturday but all of us have an opportunity to share the gospel in individual conversations that we will have. And so God, I pray that we would listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we would take advantage of opportunities that are presented to us, that we would be prepared and bold and willing to speak about Jesus and that he is raised from the dead. God, we thank you for Jesus. And as we worship you this morning, as Pastor Josh is about to come and preach to us, we pray that you would bless the preaching of the word. And we pray that you would help us to be instructed by it and that we would grow as a result. God, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. you would, turn in the Bible to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'm not sure if you all noticed, but uh, during the offering, that was two people, four hands, 20 fingers on the piano, and I have never seen that before. That was awesome. Thank you all for doing that. It sounded great. I didn't know if there was enough room over there for something like that to happen, and it looks like it. We finished our long study in Revelation just a few Sundays ago. And so we are trying to get ourselves past Easter. And the Sunday after Easter, we are going to start a study walking through the book of Nehemiah. We're happy to announce that and look forward to that Old Testament small book there about leadership and about teamwork. And you're going to see that in the book of Nehemiah. Last week, I preached from Psalm 67, one, because we've been memorizing it as a church, but also because in the first two verses of Psalm 67, you have this beautiful picture of what in so many ways is at the heart of our church and at the culture, really, the family culture of our church, that God's blessing upon us is so that his way may be known. God blesses us so that we might let people know what Jesus is like, blessed to be a blessing, or in other words, maybe in the world, but not of the world, but in the world strategically, that we would help people come to know Jesus. And so this week, I wanted to do another message along those lines. This is going to be very similar to last week, although it's a different passage. This is John 13. And then next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then the next Sunday after that is Easter Sunday, and then the next Sunday after that is when we will get into Nehemiah, all right? It's very important that Christians understand that we are to be a witness. We know that, and we hear that, and we're often not very good at that. What is it that makes us a faithful witness to Christ? If God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life, then one would think just rather naturally that we would think, I want everybody to hear that, know that, and believe that. 
That is to be the heart of the church, the heart of the redeemed. We should want people to know God and his great love for us through Christ. Jesus really died on the world's behalf. And he really did rise from the grave, and he lives now. He lives forever. He is alive. And anybody that would turn and hope fully in him gets that everlasting life. We have a message to share, and all Christians know that. But how we share it comes a little bit more complicated. And Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, that your saving power would be known among all nations. Psalm 67, as we preached last week, says, God, we seek you, we pray to you that you would bless us, and even more than bless us, that your face would look upon us and transform us, and in doing that, other people would know what your salvation is like, your life change is like, your way is like. And not just other people, but all nations, the whole earth. This seems to be the very strategy of God that his blessing upon us causes other people to be blessed. I want to make that point again this morning from John chapter 13. Read with me. We're going to read the first 20 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. This passage shows us, among many other passages in the Bible, just truly how humble Jesus was. Jesus is the greatest man to ever live, and he is also the most humble man to ever live. And this passage shows us that. But like John's gospel in every page, it is a very rich passage, and there is a lot to cover here. And I'm not going to be able to cover every bit of it, but I'm hoping to show you from this passage today um, what it's like to love people so that you can share with them about God's love. 
to love people so that you can share with them about God's love. Another way to say this is that we would meet somebody's physical needs on the way to hopefully meeting their spiritual needs. Loving somebody so that you can tell them about God's love or rather meeting somebody's physical need so that you can tell so that you can then meet their spiritual need. The three points I want to come with this morning start with this number 1, loved until the end. Loved until the end. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know John that is, is you know John is a master writer. He wrote Revelation, he wrote this Gospel of John, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's really good. John's books in the New Testament are some of the most loved in the world. They are rich, and yet here again, John is doing it. This passage that we read right now is the Thursday of the Passion Week. This passage here is the Thursday of the Passion Week. This is the Last Supper. Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and crucified on the, on the next day. That stuff's coming up. And what we have going on here is a beautiful scene of the way Jesus is, specifically, with his disciples. These 12 guys had been hand-selected by Jesus. As he started his ministry and he walked around, he found those guys and he chose them. He called them to come into his service. Follow me, he said. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Commit your lives to me. And they did. And for three years, Christ has led them and served them and taught them and shown every example of what God wants his people to be like in the world. And they have seen that. And now... They don't know they're at the very end, but you and Jesus knows he's at the very end. And the reader absolutely, from this perspective, knows it's at the very end. Jesus would die the very next day. And John, being such a good writer, is really putting that into perspective. Jesus' last days are put into perspective. Look, 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 just look at this, what he says at, at verse 1. He says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Think about that. Jesus is aware in his mind, as they're having dinner, as he's about to wash feet, Jesus is aware, all these 33 years that I've been living here on life, it's about to come to an end. My time's up. It's time for me to go back to heaven. It's time for me to go back to the Father. And John says it like that, which is just really good. And then he says it a little bit in a different way in verse 3. Look at this. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, look at this next phrase, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that is like just detailed specifics there that create a whole category of things that we believe. In the incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven, came to earth, was born of Mary, grew up, lived, died, and then in the ascension, went back to heaven, right? I mean, these are the big things that we believe, and John, in a half of a verse in 13.3, just kind of says it like that. Jesus came from God, time's up, now he's going back to God. John's a good writer. And if you pay attention to what we read and study, you really learn and grow a lot. It's in that frame of thought, though, that he ends verse 1 by saying, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We often say how much of a loving God God is. His love is an everlasting love a steadfast love, and an unconditional love. But this statement here gives us yet another perspective of about how loving Christ is. Jesus loves them 
to the end. He never quit loving them. He never gave up loving them. He never had enough of loving them. He never did what you and I do so regularly. Let our love run out because it doesn't seem to be reciprocated. I'm tired of this getting nothing in return, we might say. I'm tired of giving, 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 and never getting, getting, getting. I'm tired of giving all of myself and never getting of that back. That's what the the fallen, shortened person like us eventually gets to, whether it's with our jobs or our friends, our neighbor, even our marriages, or even with our kids. We have seen love run out. John writes here that Jesus loved them till the end. They were at so many times not as lovable as one might think. Remember, Peter declares his great devotion to Jesus, says, I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus seemingly says, yeah, right. The rooster will crow three times, right? He says that he loves Jesus, but then he denies him. He he denies him three times before the rooster crows one time. Sorry about that. But what we see there is a picture of Peter wanting to declare his love and then not being able to continue that love the way he should. And yet John is making the point here that Jesus loves and loves to the end. Even here now, it is Jesus' final night. And it's often been pointed out, hey, if you knew it was your final night, what would you do? Would you figure out your bucket list? Would you go spend all your money? Would you go out and just sin as big as you could because, hey, it was your last chance to? You know, what would you do? Would it be all about you? Would you do all your favorite things, your favorite meal, your favorite people, your favorite dessert, you you know, you, you, you? And here Jesus on his final night loves them all the way until the end. There is a lesson here on what it means to love. Love is a verb. Love gives and sacrifices. And love sees the beauty and the reward and the glory of God in the act of doing something for others simply because that's the way God is toward us. Jesus loves until the end. Another aspect of this that really brings some weight to his love is that in the middle of this passage, it teaches us that Jesus already knew, he was aware that Satan was working in Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. In this passage's unfolding, we see Jesus even prompt Judas, go ahead and do what you're going to do. Jesus knows that Judas, after three years, is going to turn his back on him completely. He's going to give him over to the people that want to kill Jesus. He is going to be an enabler in the situation and help them arrest Jesus and kill Jesus. Now, we've got a big theology and a big doctrine, and so we know that in the middle of them wanting to kill Jesus, there's this other theme that says, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I'm laying it down on my own. We know that. We know that it was the plan of God to send Jesus to earth to die for his people. But the way that that would come about, the way that would happen and unfold is by Judas being crooked and and, and Satan in his heart and in his life turning his back on Jesus and giving him over to them so that they could come and arrest him and take him and beat him and abuse him and accuse him and all of those things and then crucify him on the cross. It is in the middle of that ugly, ugly part of the story, that ugly part, that very regrettable part of what happens to Judas that John says Jesus loves them to the end. It is a powerful thing to love, but it is also a very powerful thing to be loved. And I want that idea to be what moves us through the rest of our text and through the rest of this message. It is a powerful thing to be loved. I hope every child in the room right now feels loved by whoever it is that's raising them. It is a powerful thing to be loved. If you're an adult in here and you have confidence and security in your life, so much of that is due to a mom or a dad that loved you deeply and sacrificially. It is a powerful thing to be loved. 
earlier when Matt read from 1 Corinthians 13, this passage on love, this is not a passage on love in marriage. It has nothing to do with marriage, except for that in marriage there can be love. But this passage is just about love. Love inside of a church. Love from believer to believer. Love from person to person, brother to brother, sister to sister. Love. Listen to these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. So much of what we call love or think is love is quite honestly not love. God is the standard of love, and he's the one who is showing us what love is. And here in John chapter 13, we have this wording that says he loved his own, and he loved them to the end. What an awesome thing that is. He never quit on that. You know, as I started thinking about finishing in love and finishing all the way and going all the way to the end and never giving up on that love and never bowing out, never saying enough's enough, but loving to the end, it got me thinking about sometimes how we, we leave our jobs. And there's two, two different contrasts here. Sometimes you love your job and you give many years there. You work there for 20, 30, 40 years. And when it comes time for you to quit or retire or resign or whatever that is, you dread that final day. You can't imagine what it's going to be like walking out that last time. There's tears in your heart. You're hugging necks. You're saying thank you. And it almost pains you to leave a place that you have been devoted to, that you've given your life to, that you might say that you've loved being a part of. But now contrast that with the person who doesn't like their job and can't wait to get out of there. Perhaps they put in a two weeks notice and are hoping that the boss says, you don't even have to stay that long. A two weeks notice turns into one week or just one day. We're not going back. I don't even want to see those people ever again. There's no handshakes, there's no goodbyes, there's no whatever. And, and to contrast these two responses helps us think through Jesus. Regardless of how you might say Jesus' job was or what the people were like to him or what he was getting out of it, the Bible says that Jesus loved them to the end. There's a lot of reasons why the disciples stayed faithful to Jesus until their end. But one of the strong reasons why they were faithful witnesses, even under persecution and even unto death, is because they knew they were loved by Jesus. They knew their Savior loved them. They knew it. He faithfully showed that all the way. And in setting up for where I want to go in this frame of thought from last week with Psalm 67 and this week with John 13, I want us to, to think, okay, I want us to think deeply and kind of look at ourselves in the mirror, and I want us to think about while we claim the love of God, okay, do the people around us know how loved we are? Before we get into loving them, because that's where we're going, before we get into loving them and serving them, do they know how loved we are? Is your life a response to the great love of God? Now, we get to see some good, strong marriages, and you can tell, man, they love each other. They are, they are happy together. Man, that's awesome to observe, and it is a beautiful thing. But now let's take that a step further to where we're thinking about, man, that person is resting in the great love of God. That person knows who they are. That person is loved by God. I want to share with you just a few passages that speak to this. Psalm 63.3 says, 
God, your steadfast love is better than life. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That there is an awareness that says, for all of the goodness this life gives me, something better is the love of God. In Romans chapter 8, as that passage ends, listen to this incredible statement on God's love. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible thing it is, a powerful thing to be loved, to be loved by God. And the gospel teaches us that Christ Jesus came and suffered and died on our behalf because he loves us. Our passage here now is showing us of Christ's love and his faithful love to the end. These disciples had a lot of questions. They didn't understand everything at all times. It wasn't until Acts chapter 2 and Jesus was gone and the Holy Spirit came that that power actually kicked in and took over their lives to where it all started to make sense to them. But what they are aware of right now is that he loves them. They will understand that love more fully as they understand the gospel. But they understand that he loves them. A few years ago when my oldest son was in elementary school. This was way before COVID. We could go and have lunch with your kids at school. You know, you're allowed to do that now, and if you ever have a chance, go do it. They may not like you showing up there. They may be embarrassed, but it'll create a good memory. I remember sitting down there at that elementary school cafeteria table, all of those other kids sitting around, and my son was embarrassed and probably didn't like me being there. I don't know another little boy sitting right across from me who I had known said, Mr. Green, JJ loves you so much. And I remember thinking like, that's an odd thing to say right now. And I remember saying, what, what makes you say that? And he said this. This is elementary kid, right? Could just be talking. But he said, we can just tell. See, that's how love works, isn't it? We're talking about real love, big love, deep love. When you love somebody, you can tell. When you're loved by somebody, you can tell. And the Bible is teaching us here in John 13 of the great love of Jesus, which is gonna lead us into what he's about to do. Number one, he loved until the end. But number two, we see him loving them by helping with their physical needs, specifically washing their feet. Let's pick up now at verse four. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, okay? So we're gonna stop there for just a second. While they're there, they're around the table, they're about to have dinner, and Jesus steps up and takes off the outer garment and grabs a towel, and he's about to start washing their feet. Obviously, we don't have this in our culture, but they had it in their culture, okay? We need to be able to recognize that. I want to skip over uh, these next few verses, 7, 8, and 9, and I want to bounce you down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, so now he's finished. He's done washing all their feet. That would have taken some time. There were 12 disciples there, but he's finished. He's putting his outer garment back on, dried his hands off. Okay, now he's coming back. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You're getting the idea right. You're getting the terms right. I am your teacher, and I am your Lord. I am the God in the flesh. I am the most important human ever. And what you say about me and think about me and believe about me and how you orient your life around me truly means everything. It makes all the difference. It reveals if you know how much I love you. That's what he's getting to. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Does everybody see that? If Christ is a servant that stoops low to do whatever can be done, whatever needs to be done, whatever is a blessing to do. If that's the way Jesus moves, if that's the way Jesus functions, if that's the way Jesus thinks, then anybody in line after him, because our eyes are on him, anybody who is marching according to his marching orders, anybody who identifies as a Christ follower needs to see him say there so clearly in verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Verse 16 is the big one. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. A remarkable statement there from Jesus the master saying, you're not greater than me. If you think your job's more important than my my job, you got this out of order. If you think what you're going to do is more important than what I'm going to do, you've got this out of order. Since you believe in me for eternal life, since you've committed your lives to following me, then you ought to do to other people the way I do to other people, like I have just washed your feet. The humility of Christ here is incredible. In verse 17, he makes this statement, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the message that comes out in the Bible time and time again. It's not enough to just know it. It's not enough to just think it. It's not enough to just believe it, right? Our our lives are to be centered upon a faith that because of that saving faith, that we are changed by it. It's not enough to just know these things, Jesus says. You are blessed when you go and do these things. John 13, 17 says exactly that. The humility of Christ knowing that this is his final night, the humility of Christ knowing that tomorrow he would take the very brunt of the judgment of God as he is nailed to a cross and the whole world mocks and scoffs at him, that he would be rejected by people, rejected by men, rejected by his followers, rejected by his enemies, that he would be rejected by the Father in heaven because of the sins of the world in him. Jesus knowing that that is coming in the same train of thought, has a bucket of water and a towel and wants to serve. The 11 and the 12th. And yet this incredible humility is to be the attitude and character and demeanor of the church. This remarkable scene is to be our very culture. This incredible passage of Jesus being this humble and serving is to be what you and I are aiming to embrace. This is what we want people to get and see and experience. Sproul, writing about Christians in the world, writes it like this. Christians are sent into the world of fallen humanity by their Lord to witness to it about God's Christ and his kingdom and to serve its needs. You hear that? We are sent into the world to serve its needs. But they are to do so without falling victim to its materialism. They are to do so without falling victim to its lack of concern about God and eternity and its pursuit of pleasure and status above all else. The outlook and mindset of human societies reflect more of the pride seen in Satan, who now for centur- who, who for now continues to influence them more they are to be seen than the humility seen in Christ. Christians, like Christ himself, are to empathize with people's anxieties and needs in order to serve them and communicate God's love for them effectively. That's R.C. Sproul writing about Christians living in the world. We are to empathize with people's anxieties and needs 
in order to serve them and communicate God's love for them effectively. Jesus here is washing the disciples' feet in such a way that they are gripped by it. The the third point I'm going to make today is going to unpack the scene of Peter saying, no way. Peter loves Jesus. He is pledging his love to Jesus. And the reason why Peter loves Jesus so much is because Jesus loves Peter so much. That's the way the gospel works. We don't love God first. He loves us first. And our lives are a response to how much he loves us. And Peter gets that much of it. He really does. He knows that Jesus is great. He calls him master and Lord. He knows that. But when it comes time to be served in this humility, in this humble, menial menial task, he says... No way. And yet Jesus has to get him into that right way of thinking. No, this is the way. This is how we do it. We humble ourselves. We lay down our lives. We lose our pride. We help anybody anywhere. I want to remind you of that great passage of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows of the Good Samaritan. Few people really get the story well. We think anytime somebody does a good deed or, or does something helpful that that's the Good Samaritan, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad that it's a common phrase in society, but the story is much richer. I want you to pay close attention to how it ends, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want you to notice how loving the Samaritan is, specifically by how much he cares for the needs, the specific needs, the physical needs of the person who has been hurt. How extensive his love and effort is. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest, okay? A very religious person, a priest, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side and didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to love, serve, meet, physical needs, nothing. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite, a religious person, another very religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, no religious affiliation, at least in this story that he's telling, Matter of fact, supposed to be at odds with this person, okay? They're not supposed to be helping each other. Some of y'all might recall John chapter four, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, Jesus even asked her for some water, and she was like, why are you even talking to me? Why are you even asking me for water? That's how much Samaritans were not connected with people, all right? In this story that Jesus is telling, watch what the Samaritan does. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, so now this has cost him a night, The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Surely this Samaritan had things to do, right? He said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which is an absurd statement, okay? Which of those three categories, the churchgoer, the preacher, or the guy from across town? Jesus says, which of those three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. 
hey, we're ready to be done with all the talk about categories, whether you're this, whether you're that, whether you're Christian, whether you're evangelical, whether you're Protestant, whether you're this, whether you're fundamental, whether you're Baptist, whether you're all of that. And we are absolutely ready to be set free by identifying with who Christ is, what he's really like, what the love of God is doing inside of us, and then laboring to make sure that anybody that we come in contact with is loved in that same way. Notice in this passage, the night before he's to be killed, to his 12 followers, one that's about to betray him, Jesus is washing their feet. He is doing something for them that has to be done. Their feet are to be cleaned. He's doing something to them that needs to be done. He's doing something to them that only the lowliest would do, and yet he is loving them in a physical, real, tangible way, meeting a physical need. K.B. writing in his new book, Dangerous Jesus, says this. Brothers and sisters, there are zero exceptions to Christ's command to love your neighbor. There are no religious exceptions. There are no political exceptions. There are no sexuality exceptions. There are no ethnic exceptions. There isn't even an enemy exception in Christ's command. We are to love, and we are to love everybody. And we love people by meeting their physical needs. What can we do? How can we help? How can we serve you? What are the needs? Last week, as I ended the sermon on Psalm 67, I prayed about the city set up on a hill that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. I prayed about what Jesus says happens to a light. When he says that we're to be a light in the dark world, and he says, nobody takes a light and finds a place to put it down low and then put the table on top of it because the light is to be seen. It's to make the things around it brighter. It's to get rid of the darkness. It's to be helpful, the light is. And so nobody takes it and puts it down there and covers it up. Instead, once you have a light or a lamp, you either hang it from your ceiling or you get one of those tall uh, lamps that you put in the corner of the house or you, you do something where you set it up on top of a table and you turn it on and then everybody can see that light. Jesus is the one who says that and when he says that, he's talking about the church. The church is a city on a hill that is to be seen and we are seen in the world by the way that we love. We are seen in the world by the way that we love. The love of Jesus here is to the end. It says that in verse one. And one of the ways that they so get the way he loves them is by the way he serves them. We are to be a serving people, loving by helping with physical needs. But that is not the end of the message. That's not the end of the passage, and that is certainly not the whole of what we are to be as a church. Our third and final point this morning is that we are to be loving by helping with spiritual needs. And anytime we get these two things disconnected, we are in big trouble. If we want to be a people that has a message or has a talk, and yet we're not doing any sort of loving or sacrificing or serving or helping, then we become like this noisy, loud, banging symbol, 1 Corinthians 13 says. We become what James says, and we have faith without works, proving that our faith is dead. We become what James is warning about when he says, don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. We become what Jesus is warning about here when he says, now that you know these things, blessed are you that if you do them. We cannot allow ourselves to be people who claim the promises and love of God if we are not moved and transformed by them. That's true. And on our way to being moved and transformed by them, we also share that in loving people by meeting their spiritual needs. Look back with me to verse six. Jesus with the towel and the water, and he comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's like Peter says, he's looking around the other disciples and he's saying, what's going on here? Is, is he really about to do this? Is he about to wash our feet? He asked that question, he says, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered back, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. You're gonna get this eventually. It's all gonna make sense. This is the way he's pointing out. Verse eight, Peter said to him, 
you will never wash my feet. That's a strong answer, isn't it? There's resolve there. There's confidence there. There is loyalty to Jesus there. He has such a high respect for Jesus that he says, man, you're never going to wash my feet. Man, I should be washing your feet. And there's a lot of that that's true, isn't it? Except for that the way of Christ and his kingdom is to get low. The way of Christ and his kingdom is to never exalt yourself. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It is truly the way of Jesus that greatness comes from humbling yourselves and saying, all glory to God, no glory to me. We don't need any attention. How can we help? What can we do? Peter doesn't quite get that yet, so he's resisting. You're never going to wash my feet. And then we get this amazing statement from Jesus, which is the key to this whole passage. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Pretty strong. For as strong as Peter's response is, Jesus' is even stronger here. For all the people that want to take my second point, loving and meeting physical needs, and disconnect it from salvation through Christ alone who died on the cross and repentance of sins, they've forgotten this verse. Here you have the loving, most humble man on earth looking Peter straight in the eye, who he loves until the end, and says, if I don't wash you, you'll have nothing to do with me. And it's a message for all of the world, and it's a message for First Baptist Church here this morning. If you think you're just going to follow in Jesus' example and not let Jesus wash you clean, you don't have anything to do with Jesus. And you know what's happening in our world right now is a great purification of a lot of people who say to Jesus, I don't need you to wash my feet. And Jesus is very quickly able to respond and say, then you don't have anything to do with me if you don't let me wash you. And it ain't just your stinky feet that need to be washed. It's your filthy heart that needs to be washed. This is the message that Jesus preaches even to Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, it's all good, man. You're such a good guy. I mean, we've been together three years, man. It's all good. I mean, I'll just skip over you then. I know you don't need to. You'll, you'll, you'll wash mine. It's all good. No, he looks him dead straight in the eye and says, you don't let me wash you and every bit of you inside and out, you don't have anything to do with me. And Peter understood it. I'm trying to present it to you as bold and strong from Jesus. And, Jesus, and Peter understood it as bold and strong from Jesus because look at verse 9. Peter did not argue back one time. You don't argue with your master, do you? You don't argue with your parent. I'm trying to teach my kids that. You don't argue with your parent. If mama says do this, you do this. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Look at verse nine. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter understood that he needed to be washed clean by Jesus inside, outside, top to bottom. Everywhere is dirty and filthy, and I need it to be forgiven. Jesus was teaching them about needing to be forgiven of sins, cleansed on the inside, by showing them his humility of what he's doing to their feet. This passage has this beautiful double theme going along where the example of Jesus to be a humble servant is a beautiful example for us. But the message of Christ that he washes away sins and forgives sinners and changes lives is the message that has to go along with it. Anybody that understands Christ and truly his way of the cross and his death for us knows you don't disconnect these two. May we never read John 13 and not talk about being a humble servant. And may we re never read John 13 and not talk about needing to have all of us washed. They go together. Christopher Wright wrote an awesome book a while back called The Mission of God. I have loved this book. The way he thinks biblically about mission, if you are thinking about missions, you're going on mission trips, you're thinking about being a missionary, God's working in your life, read this book by Christopher Wright, The Mission of God. Listen to what he says. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Jesus is teaching us this in John 13. This is how we do it. This is how we love people. 
This is how we get to having a conversation with somebody who is still wanting to be like Jesus. They like the, the, the following him. They like the helping people. They like all of that. But when it comes to understanding having your heart washed and clean, they still push back. There's so many religious people out there like that. There are a ton of people in the world still, in the name of Christ, that want to do so many good works, but won't touch the idea of repentance of sins as the only way of getting right with God. Y'all, there's a whole world of people out there like that, and Jesus just won't have it. Jesus will so quickly to his main guy, you could make the argument that Peter is the best follower of Christ that, that, that we've ever known. He is the loudest one. He's the first to speak out of the 12 disciples. He, in many ways, is the leader. He's in the inner circle of the three. It's up between Peter and John. And Jesus is very quickly able to look at Peter and say, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, we've got to be forgiven. We've got to recognize that we need our sins forgiven by Jesus. But then the question becomes, how do we, to use the very word that Sproul used, how do we effectively talk about this with people? That's the big rub. That's what all of your friends that go to churches and go to other churches are wrestling with these days. That's why we're talking so much, okay, about why young people don't like church and why people get into their 20s and leave the church. The big issue is how do we communicate this well? And if it's all about being judgmental and pointing out people all the things that they're doing wrong and it doesn't have the foot washing with it and the laying down of your life and the greater one becoming the lesser one to the lesser one, if it doesn't have that with it, then no wonder people aren't listening. I mean, I'm a preacher and I try to walk with God. I pretty much live the straight and narrow. And just about as soon as anybody wants to be rude and mean and judgmental to me, I'm like, okay, I'll go talk to somebody else. Nobody has time for a religious, rude, mean, judgmental person. And the world, thankfully, is finally making that point to us. And I'm thankful for the world doing that. It's time for Christians to get over their arrogant, wrong attitudes. How many loving passages do we have to read for us to wake up and see there are no exceptions to that? We are to be the people in the world modeling what Jesus is like. Yes, we have a conversation to have with them. So how are we going to get to have that conversation with them? And guess what's happening? So many of the people that call themselves Christians that aren't loving and serving are actually never talking to this, talking to people about this because they don't have a relationship with anybody that would listen. They don't have a relationship with anybody who would listen. You think Peter listens to Jesus? Do you think the other disciples listen to Jesus? Do you think they care about what he's saying? You better believe they do. He was just on his knees with a towel around his waist and a bucket of water washing their feet. You think the guy that was robbed, beaten, left for dead, ignored by the priest, ignored by the Levite, you think he listens to that Samaritan when it was the next morning before he came to? Do you think he listened to what that Samaritan said? You better believe he would. You better believe he said, man, why why are you helping me so much? This is the way of Christ that we would meet some physical needs on the way to meeting spiritual needs. I think about things like our basketball goal out back and how every day there are people back there. There's a dad and daughter that come a couple days a week and they're always back there. They just work and they practice and they play basketball together and it's cool. I think about us being able to say with great joy that basketball is helping some people. That basketball goal is serving some families. That basketball is good for somebody. I think about our playground and how every day there are lots and lots of people out there. I think about when I drive by and I see moms from our church, multiple moms from our church, just up here talking and pushing their kids on the swings. I think about when guests show up and they ask, hey, are we allowed to get on your playground? It pains me that that would even have to be asked, doesn't it you, church? Why'd y'all build a $50,000 playground so that y'all can tell everybody to not use it? Unbelievable. Unbelievable that that's even a thing. No, ma'am, we build it for you to use it. 
We built it for you and your kid to enjoy an afternoon. It's going to be 70 degrees and sunny today. And if you'll show up here in between church hours at 3 o'clock, and I can't predict the future, but if you'll come by today somewhere around 3 or 4, I guarantee you, you'll see multiple families on the playground. Why do we build it? So they would know we're for them. So they would know we love them. But on the way of helping people physically, somebody like me or like you has to step in and lovingly talk about our Savior. Somebody has to be able to step in and say, Jesus, to put it in a sentence, Jesus has made such a lasting impact in my life that I hope you will see the lasting impact he can make in your life. Jesus has forgiven my sins and given me a love and loved me to the end. I stand here today loved by God and you too can be loved by God. Those are the conversations that have to come out of our serving. If our church pendulum swings too far that all we do is help people and we're not ever talking, we're in trouble. If our church pendulum swings too far this way and all we ever do is talk, we're not ever helping anybody, it's swung too far this way. But church, by the Spirit of God and the conviction that comes from the Spirit of God and the faithful commitment of this Word, which is a guide for us, as we look to this and the Spirit works in us, may the pendulum stay right there in the middle where people are feeling loved by you and I and people are in conversations with you and I about what Jesus has done in us and what Jesus can do in them. This is the way of Christ. Now, when you take this back to verse 1, and you allow yourself to say, he loves me, you will admit that there are times in this life where other people don't love you. As long as Christianity is trying to have its influence in the world based off how the world is treating us, we're going to fail. Stop aiming for that. People are going to not like you. People are going to let you down. It's not going to go the way you want it to. They're going to fail in your family. They're going to fail in your school. They're going to fail in your community. They're going to fail, right? They are not able to love us correctly. And we get that. On this side of it, we get it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it feels good. But we at least get it. But we have a Father in heaven that loves us. And he loved us to the end. And the way he loved us was by serving us. And while he serves us, he tells us, I lay down my life for you. And in us trusting in the forgiveness of sins, we get to go and do likewise. Look down here at the very end. uh, Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. As the disciples spent this time with Jesus, they were being taught the way of Christ, the way of God. The next day, he would be arrested The next day, they hid in the upper room, scared to death. The next day, he showed up in their upper room meeting, alive. And from that moment on, they were like rocket-fueled into, we want to be like him. We know how much he loved us. We know what he taught us. We know how he treated us. Let's go be that to the world. Christ in us the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus being so countercultural. On his his final night, God, he was teaching about service and he was serving. And he was teaching about how the act of service points to eternal life and forgiveness. Oh God, we pray by the power of your spirit that that's what we would be like. We would walk it, we would talk it, we would talk it, we would walk it, we would walk it, we would talk it, we would talk it, we would walk it. God, so that very much so in the middle of it all is a loving church. Oh Father, help us to embrace this. God, you've given us many, many, many open doors. May we love in those open doors and may we speak about your love in those open doors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
As we sing this final song today, let's have a time of response. If you're here today and all you've ever thought is that you serve God and you've never let him serve you, would you trust in Christ? Maybe you've never gone public before saying, hey, I want my sins to be forgiven and I want to be a Christian. If you want to do that now, please come talk to me about that. If you're here today and you want to join our church, you want to take the steps to start that, you can do that too. We want to help you be a committed follower of Christ. And most importantly, perhaps, as we sing this final song, may every one of us collectively say, God, make me a loving, serving witness to you like that passage said. Let's sing.